mercy, and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm a little extra excited for our sermon this morning because I'm going to do something I haven't done in a while uh, that I call a shotgun sermon. Uh, It's one of those sets of readings this morning that has so many good things in it and different things that aren't super related. Where ordinarily as a preacher you would try and tie them all together in a common theme, they don't tie together. And yet I can't just focus on one of them. And so I'm just going to kind of throw it all out there, uh, hit as much of it as I can, and hopefully it'll hit as many of you uh, as uh, we can as well in the process. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Have you ever heard the expression, my body, my choice? Uh, It's pretty common out there. Uh, It's typically used to justify abortion in our uh, context today, but really, actually, it justifies any action of the body. And you can see how that thought process has easily led our society into accepting really anything you want to do to the body, no matter how extreme it may be, to transform to look like you're the opposite sex even, to mutilate the body physically and chemically. My body, my choice, right? I can do whatever I want with myself. Well, you actually can extend even farther than that if you think about it, that while you're at it, why not say, hey, it's my body, my choice to use my body to punch somebody in the face, trespass, steal, make homemade bombs, or anything else that really nobody actually believes we should be allowed to do with our bodies, but it's my body should be my choice, right? Well, like all the devil's lies, when you think about it, uh, enough, it is kind of dumb, and not at all new. The Corinthians, in our epistle lesson, seem to have been saying something similar uh, to Paul. Uh, as the uh, Bible scholars uh, look at uh, this chapter, it's usually taken that Paul is responding to uh, certain statements by the Corinthians in a letter to him, like, All things are lawful for me. And the stomach is made for food and food for the stomach. The uh, uh, parallel to that isn't mentioned, but as you see where Paul takes it, it seems as if the way the uh, Corinthians have intended, especially in the context of what we know about Greek culture from history, is that they were similarly of the opinion that Adult organs are for adult activities, so use them. Paul responded by saying, the body is meant to be used, stomach is meant for food, and God will destroy both one and the other because that's not their ultimate purpose. The relationship between the stomach and food and our bodies and this life is only an application of their purpose. It's not the fundamental one. The fundamental one is that the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body, as Paul reminds them. God made your body and it matters to him. It is 
really, in fact, not your body, as Paul reminds them, for you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Nor is it your choice, uh, for the body is made for the Lord. God made the body, redeemed the body, and made it a temple of his Holy Spirit, a place for worship. And God raised Jesus bodily from the dead because the body matters to him. And God will raise your body on the last day because the body matters to him. Our culture says that the, the body is spiritually insignificant, morally neutral, that you can do whatever you want to your body and it's not right or wrong. The only right or wrong is the freedom to decide to do whatever you want with your body. God's word says that's a lie. And it's the same lie that the devil has been telling for thousands of years. The body does matter. So, Paul says, glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. You can make a whole series of sermons on this, not to mention a, a whole sermon. But like I said, we have other stuff to get to. Uh, but it's worth at least briefly noting some of the key uh, features of how this is uh, emphasized in Scripture. You remember how Jesus cleansed the temple uh, at the beginning and end of his earthly ministry. How he referenced his own body as the temple when he predicted his death and resurrection. Tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it, rebuild it. In so doing, he paid the price for the redemption of our bodies, the cleansing of our bodies, that we might be a temple for the Holy Spirit and not for uncleanness. There's many different ways we can continue to unpack that, but I'll just highlight the application of it. Glorify God in your body. And how do we do that? What does it look like to glorify God in your body? Well, don't pollute it with idolatry. Uh, don't bring false gods and use your body to worship and pursue uh, other things besides God as though they were more important. This is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And actually, literally in the Hebrew, uh, you shall have no other gods before my face, in my presence. Don't bring those idols into the temple and just throw them in my face. This was one of the common uh, complaints of the prophets in the times of idolatry, that the priests even were corrupt and were bringing idols into God's temple, introducing idols and idolatry right into the very presence of God in the temple. They were so brazen and callous. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't bring idolatry into that. And don't destroy your body like it's worthless with unhealthy habits 
uh, pollute and contaminate our ability to use the body for holy purposes. Just like you wouldn't spray paint graffiti on the wall of the church. Uh, Don't destroy your body. Do offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Which Paul in Romans 12 comes back to this whole theme. uh, Describing as our spiritual act of worship. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That means using your body uh, to perform selfless acts of love for others, just as Christ did. And we doesn't mean get someone to nail you to a cross, but it means to show that selfless sacrificial love, which is your spiritual act of worship. And you notice how that spiritual act of worship requires you to have a body uh, to offer as a living sacrifice. Um, Because our bodies matter. We cannot engage in true spirituality and true spiritual worship of God without the bodily aspect that God intentionally connected to our spirit for that purpose. I've heard someone once say that God gave us knees so that we could kneel. That you can't kneel without them. That we kneel in prayer. That we offer our bodies as living sacrifices and loving our neighbor as Christ loved us. And this is our true spiritual act of worship. This is how we honor God with our bodies. That's sermon one. And if the other ones are as long, we're going to be here for a while. So I better speed this up. Uh, Sermon 2, just introduce with a question. A good epiphany question. How does God make himself known to us? How does God make himself known to us? In our Old Testament lesson, we hear about God's call of Samuel. And that's Samuel's path, but is that ours? There's two different ways of looking at Scripture, basically. Uh, is a a direct application of this is true for me, what's true for him is true for me. And what would lead us to say, well, I guess I can know God by laying awake at night and listening for him to call my name. Or you can read it more contextually uh, to say that's how God came to Samuel. That doesn't necessarily mean that's how he makes himself known to everyone. Uh, The... uh, Old Testament lesson begins with a a statement of uh, the conditions at the time, that the word of the Lord was rare, there uh, was no frequent vision, uh, that the um, Bible translators, I think, get it right there, but not necessarily as precise as it could be. Uh, Again, not to keep going back to the Hebrew, but Uh, The Hebrew idiom there that's translated as uh, infrequent or or rare uh, is to uh, break through, uh, a participle of breaking through, uh, which is a kind of difficult idiom to translate. So I think all the translators just kind of take the the general sense of it that uh, it didn't happen. Uh, But I think the nuance of it is valuable that God was speaking. It just wasn't breaking through. God was speaking, but it wasn't getting to the people quite. Because, 
if you look at the context, the people in charge of sharing God's word with the people weren't doing it. The context of what God actually was, came to say to Samuel and to do by appointing Samuel as his prophet was to pronounce judgment on the house of Eli, the priest, whose sons had become corrupt were using the sacrifices of the people for their own enrichment and their own wealth rather than to guide the people to God and to teach the people about God. And Eli knew this and wasn't doing anything about it. That they weren't faithfully sharing the word of God. And so God came to Samuel in a special, powerful way. said, I'm going to do something about this. Samuel, I've rejected Eli and the house of his Eli, and you're going to be my messenger now so that the word of God can break through and come to the people. And so this isn't a, a normative description of this is how God speaks. Uh, this is how you should expect God to speak to you. It's not that. Because if nothing else, if it were that, we wouldn't need the Bible to tell us because God would just have already been speaking to us in the night all our lives. Uh, that we have the Bible because this is, in fact, how God has consistently and continually worked throughout history uh, by doing his special things uh, through unique people, uh, through the call of Abraham, the call of Moses, uh, the call of Jacob, the call of Samuel, and so on and so on ultimately paving the way and preparing us to see God's work and to hear God's word from a unique individual uh, who is not only called by God, but sent by God to earth from heaven. The word made flesh, who is the one who breaks through the, the darkness of sin, who breaks through the bounds of death uh, to bring us God's word and to bring us into fellowship with God. And Jesus, uh, the new and eternal Moses, the new and eternal Jacob, the new and eternal Samuel, David, Nehemiah, you name it. As the author of Hebrews says at the very beginning of his book, in many and various ways, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. Now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. That in the call of Samuel, we see ultimately, I think, the, uh, the main point of foreshadowing to, uh, foreshadowing to us the coming of Christ, who comes with a unique relationship with God uh, to do what the spiritual leaders were failing to do, uh, to bring us into that close relationship with God as we continue to listen to him and hear his voice. As he speaks to us through the scriptures, we read the word of, about him and from him. And through him, grow closer and closer to God. That's sermon two. Uh, sermon three might be my favorite, and it might not. But it's one of them. As we get to our gospel lesson, Nathaniel uh, is visited by his friend Philip, who says, we found the Messiah. 
I could do a whole nother one on, on Philip, like, we found Jesus. And Jesus was like, I found you first. Uh, but Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? A couple of things struck me about uh, this question. is The first one is how we like to judge God's claims, like we know better. You've probably, again, heard people say, I think God would support people doing whatever makes them happy. Or something like, I can't believe God would ever allow someone to go to hell. Whenever I hear stuff like that, I, think, I don't say it because I'm a very non-confrontational person, but I think, that's nice. But I don't care what your imaginary friend named God is like. And the actual God certainly doesn't. Because God is who he is, whether we like to think of him that way or not. And Nathaniel basically says, I don't think the Messiah would ever come from a place like Nazareth. Not from any scriptural basis of where the scriptures say the Messiah would come from, just from his own personal prejudice. And Jesus says later on, it's funny you should say that. He goes on to highlight to Nathaniel just how wrong his personal prejudices are. In the context of the, the gospel lesson, uh, there seems to be a kind of regional uh, rivalry or bias or something uh, behind Nathaniel's assumption. Maybe something like a Chiefs fan saying, can anything good come out of Denver or whatever city the Raiders are in now? Uh, who can keep track of that? But there's an underlying reality uh, that's uh, much more significant and very, very powerful. And that's the second thing that really struck me out of this. If you know anything about Nazareth, it's an extremely small and remote rural town, underprivileged, socially insignificant. And this is something, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is something even people from Nazareth would probably say. When was the last famous person to come from here? What makes me, anyone think that my life would be a success when I look at my surroundings and my environment? If you know anything about any town or any, uh, anybody's life, this is something that people often say about their own experiences. Can anything good come out of this? Maybe they're looking at their life as a whole and feeling just insignificant unworthy, unable to make any sort of impact, or maybe it's some specific thing. Or you look at an illness, uh, the loss of a loved one, a loss of mobility, the loss of a job, and you ask, can anything good come out of this? Our Nazareths, can, can anything good come out of this? There's two ways we can respond to that. One is it's a wonderful life. The other is it's a gruesome death. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life is a well-known Christmas movie. Maybe you watched it just a few weeks ago. Jimmy Stewart is feeling pretty down about his life, wondering what good has come of it. He gets visited by an angel named Clarence uh, who uh, shows him the little things 
uh, that he viewed as insignificant that have made a big positive impact in the world. Uh, that we can't always see the major positive impacts of what God has accomplished through the things in our lives that we've viewed as negative or irrelevant, even sometimes disastrous. God can use those things for good, and we can't see all that all the time. That can be an encouragement and an inspiration, uh, but it is also by definition somewhat limited in its usefulness because we can't see those things. We don't have an angel named Clarence to show us the positive things. And so we can easily doubt and feel like, well, maybe some people's lives, not mine. But God has revealed to us the positive impact of another wonderful life. Uh, Not with an angel named Clarence, but from the revelation of God's word. And this could be called the most wonderful life. But if we zero in on one particular point of it, it's it's a gruesome death. Crucifixion. Nailed to a cross, beaten, stripped naked, and dying. Can anything good come of this? If Nathaniel wondered at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, can anything good come out of Nazareth? As Jesus hung dying on the cross, how much more could you ask? Can anything good come from this? Well, Good Friday did. Jesus' death paid the price for our sin. And open the way for us to have full fellowship with God. And Jesus' death was three days later undone as he rose from the dead. And 40 days after that, ascended to the right hand of God in glory and honor. It may not look like trusting Jesus' promises leads anywhere. But that's the whole thing about Christianity. It's not a triumphalist religion that proclaims perpetual sunshine and rainbows. It's a mustard seed. As Jesus said, it it looks small. It looks insignificant. But it grows. It's like the yeast in the dough that you can't see, but it impacts and leavens the whole lump. Jesus and his power is hidden, but that doesn't make it any less powerful. We look at the events of our lives with Christ in our lives. Even those disasters, the difficult times like the the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of health, God can make something good come from it. In fact, He promises he does. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes that God works all things together for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. That not even death can separate us from the love of of God in Christ Jesus. That is our glorious hope as we look to Christ and cling to Christ. 
that even in our darkest hour, in our most difficult times, when we're tempted to say, can anything good come out of this? Could anything rise up out of the ashes of my broken, burning life? Jesus rises from the tomb and says, you betcha. You betcha. That's the third sermon. I got one more. What happened under the fig tree? I think this would be a great title for a mystery novel. Uh, In the meantime, while you guys are working on that, I'll just use it as the title of a sermonette. Uh, Jesus tells Nathaniel, when Nathaniel comes to see him, uh, here is a true Israelite, a true son of Israel, literally, uh, in whom there is nothing false. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Jesus says, I tell you, Uh, While you were still under the fig tree, before Philip came to call you, I saw you. And Nathaniel is very impressed. Whoa, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, do you believe because I saw you and I said I saw you under the fig tree? I tell you, you will see greater things than these. And I think that's, that's very interesting. How Jesus, first of all, uh, attracts uh, Nathaniel's attention, and then how he directs Nathaniel's attention. I've always assumed when I've read this text that Jesus is referring to uh, where Nathaniel was immediately before Nathaniel, or Philip calls him, that he was hanging out in the shade of a, a fig tree, and Philip comes, hey, Nathaniel. Uh, I think you could still make a pretty good case for that. But as I was uh, researching this text, a number of commentators uh, suggested that this could be any period of time before then. And it raised a question of what exactly is Jesus referring to under the fig tree? Uh, You can make some interesting cases. Uh, For example, uh, maybe there was some sort of sin uh, that uh, Nathaniel had uh, been caught by. Uh, And Jesus is saying, I saw that. That would kind of knock Nathaniel's socks off, right? It would also kind of perhaps explain that equally, uh, maybe even more uh, ambiguous reference. Here is a true son of Israel in whom there is nothing false. Why did Jesus say that? All the more so because Israel was the name God gave to Jacob, who was a notorious liar. He was a deceiver. So it seems like Jesus is maybe saying this ironically, uh, uh, maybe a little sarcastically. Oh, you're a real uh, Israelite, a real son of Jacob, uh, deceiving a a deceiver and liar just like your father Jacob. I saw you under the fig tree, you know, when you were acting deceptively and disingenuously. I'm not trying to slander Nathaniel's good name. And maybe it was something completely different. I think that's an interesting way to interpret it, that, that highlights the fact that no matter how you take this, God sees everything we do. And Jesus, being God, sees and knows everything we do. And it could, be a, it could be something positive. It could be that one time Nathaniel was praying under the fig tree and he received the answer to his prayer. He was like, whoa, that's a God thing. And Jesus later on says, 
I was watching you and that's and I heard you when you were praying under the fig tree. And that that's where that answer to prayer come from. And then Nathaniel's, whoa. We don't know. We don't know what happened under the fig tree. Uh, because it's not actually that important. It was valuable to catch Nathaniel's attention, to give him a little, kind of open his eyes, wake him up a bit, uh, shock him out of, uh, as we said earlier, applying his uh, presuppositions and prejudices to who Jesus is, allowed him to just focus on Jesus and listen to Jesus and let him speak for himself, let him define himself, let him be who he is. And that's the point, is to not focus on the, the little miracle, but to focus on Jesus. Lutherans are sometimes accused by charismatics of being deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit or blind to what God is doing today. And it may look that way, Uh, Because when we see a God thing, we don't drop everything else and focus exclusively on that. Uh, But the more accurate description of Lutheran's response to modern miracles, that God certainly can speak and act in powerful ways today, but we don't focus on that a lot because we have greater miracles to talk about. We've got bigger stuff to talk about uh, because Jesus has already done what is most important and told us what is most important. And nothing should ever trump that or draw our focus away from that, that the purpose of any eye-catching miracle is to focus us on that, on Christ. As Jesus said, you will see angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. That's a reference to Jacob's ladder uh, in Genesis when Jacob, uh, again, the father of Israel, uh, had a, a dream, a vision of heaven opened, angels coming down to earth and going back, a connection, a bridge formed between God and man. Uh, It's a reference in the title, Son of Man, to Daniel chapter 7, the exaltation of the uh, Messiah. And Jesus applies both those things to himself. We see those things later on when Jesus, hanging on the cross, forms that bridge between God and man, opening the way to heaven uh, for us. In his ascension, when the angels uh, come down and are speaking to the disciples, do you, you uh, same way you saw Jesus ascending, you'll see him descending with his father's angels. Angels ascending and descending as the Son of Man is exalted to the right hand of the Father. That is the focus. That's what Jesus tells us. Hey, hey uh, you're impressed because I... I said I saw you under the fig tree? You're impressed because some people were healed or or because some miracle happened? Well, I'm glad it got your attention, but you're going to see things greater than these. You're going to see Jesus' death and resurrection. And that is what we ought to focus on. That's what the apostles continually focused on. 
And you read uh, the, the writings, Paul, Peter, John, uh, not the Beatles, the, the apostles, uh, the, they saw all these miracles. But what, 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 Peter's mother-in-law was healed, uh, saved from death. He doesn't ever mention it. Because uh, he's talking about Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Paul says Jews seek signs and Gentiles seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. I resolve to know nothing among you but Christ crucified. Because that's what all the signs are pointing to. I had a friend in college who would sometimes, when he was pointing at something, he'd see it, uh, feel like people were looking at him rather than where he was pointing. He's like, no, don't look at the hand. Look where the hand is pointing. Uh, I think God uh, would say the same thing to us sometimes. It's like When you see the hand of God at work in Scripture or in life, that's great because the hand of God is at work. But don't look at the hand. Look where the hand is pointing. It's pointing to Christ and the relationship with God we can have through him. The promise of eternal life that is ours in him. We like to see miracles. I mean, we're just a sensationalist society. We're a sensationalist organism. Uh, right? You watch the news and you don't uh, turn it on to, you know, the NASDAQ went down to half a point, blah, 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 blah. Right? Uh, there's, uh, the sensational stuff captures our attention. That's what we like to think about, we like to focus on. And the same is true in theology as it is in the news. We, we want the gaudy and the glamorous displays of God's power and omniscience. Uh, but what actually gives us security and stability in life, a real sense of, of value and purpose in life, uh, is not looking at those things, but looking at Jesus as the, the bridge and the gap between God and man uh, and the, the blessing of eternal life we have through him by his sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension. And may that peace that is beyond all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we await the day of his glorious return. Amen.